There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. But then I remembered I was walleye fishing, and had it been a walleye, I'd have felt nothing. Just sudden dead weight on the end of the line. And when I hit it, before I knew it, the boat was being thrown onto the embankment. It happened in a second, but it felt like an eternity. The first mate was yelling at them, swearing, slapping the rod out of their hands. Uh, frankly, he was just a dick. Put it together, idiots. I'm broke. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, Degenerate Anglers, and welcome to Bent, the fishing podcast that spot-burned its own streaming services by stupidly giving its Netflix password to that one broke friend it thought it could trust. <laughs> I'm Joe Cermelli. And I'm Hayden Samak, and you have other broke friends, man, because <laughs> I asked multiple times for the Netflix password. You just straight out refused to give it to me. Obvi yeah, I must have other broke friends because I did not give it to you. Um, no, if I was going <laughs> to send you something to thwart your poorness... Uh, it would be a better cordless drill, perhaps a Milwaukee <laughs> or a DeWalt. Yo, I, I, I knew this was going to come up. Uh, yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, I posted like an IG story uh, where I shared a tackle hack about using a drill to spool tip-up lines faster. You just connect it to the top of like the, the spinner that holds your flag yep. and uh, you, you can just whip <laughs> that shit around instead of using like a one-to-one -one gear ratio, like, you know, whatever. Yeah. And uh, instead of people saying, wow, thank you for the tip. That's like really helpful. All I got was, <laughs> why are you using that shitty Walmart house brand drill? <laughs> Put it together, idiots. I'm broke. <laughs> Dude, They're like, oh, he's broke. Oh, he doesn't have an expensive drill. Yeah, man. I couldn't believe it. People were hitting me up about it. Like one guy was like, he said he copied the picture and was like, yo, come get your boy. Um, but there is a lesson there that, that I've learned. That being, you have to give thought to everything in the periphery of your social media post because that's what people see, dude. Like I posted a picture of me in my garage not long ago to promo um, some some of the new meat eater fish sweatshirts and dudes are like looking at the rack of jackets 
way behind me. Like you can't even make them all out. And they're like, is that one with the yellow and gray sleeve of Cabela's wind dropper from 2009? And I'm just, I'm like, what? <laughs> but also I'm like, yeah, it is. Damn. You know? So people dude, people look at everything. Yeah, well, I, I think I'm going to make uh, smarter decisions about that going forward. <laughs> and the guy who the guy who ripped on me hardest about the drill was like, bro, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll send you a good power drill. Okay, bro, send me one. DM me. I'll give you my shit. Send me like a $300 drill, man. I'm about it. <laughs> you should send him your shit. I would take him up on it. But actually, the tip you gave was a great tip. So I hope some people also appreciate the tip you provided since it is ice fishing season. Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding, guys. Oh, like, we're always <laughs> just kidding. That's what we do. Um, but it, it is ice season. And, you know, I was thinking we talked plenty about ice last week. I thought I'd change things up a bit because even if you're doing a ton of ice fishing, Winter, mm. I think, is still kind of couch tripping season, right? Um, and I believe I've mentioned on the show before that, you know, I'm not much of a TV viewer, but if I am watching TV, it tends to be a documentary or a documentary series. So, uh, I'm, you know, I'm curious, right? Do you have a favorite fishing-related documentary? And I'm not talking about a movie like A River Runs Through It. I'm talking, you know, docs. Yeah, uh, it would be Live the Stream, the story of uh, Joe Humphreys. Great choice. That... That is a fantastic documentary. Well, I, I'll tell you what when when I uh, when I initially decided to watch it, it was actually right when the pandemic was going down. I think it had just was it like just released then, or was that just when I got to it? I don't remember exactly, but I feel like that timing is probably accurate. It was something like yeah. that. Yeah, you know, I I'd, I'd wanted to watch it, and I was worried that it was going to be like a super low budget, like you no. know, sort of thing. And it's not, man. It is no. just a good. It, no matter what your taste. It is a good documentary, fisherman or not. Um, and for anybody who doesn't know who Joe Humphreys is, one, shame on you, but uh, two, he was the <laughs> fly fishing instructor at Penn State for a, a bunch of years. He developed a whole bunch of techniques, particularly like tight line nymphing techniques. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's written tons of books to that end. And he's just an all around, like really good guy. He's a lot of folks role model. Uh, and that documentary is so much more than like the profile of an angler because his life story is Super interesting as well. Uh, yeah, dude. I, I teared up watching it. Like, I got a little emotion. Mm. And that's saying a lot considering <laughs> I've watched hundreds of fishing emotion. documentaries, right? And yeah. none of them have ever made me tear up. But that documentary, um, it's also cool for me because it was Joe that, in a roundabout way, got me to explore the limestone spring creeks in Central PA. I saw him in a VHS video in high school fishing on Penn's Creek. And my buddy and I went like, holy shit. That's not that far away. So in a way, Joe Humphreys was sort of the reason I took my first ever fishing road trip. Um, you like had you mentioned said, this before. Yeah, like I said, I idolized the guy. You said he was a role model. He he was one of mine early on learning to fly fish. Um, and it's funny because, you know, he's, he's a pretty old dude now, but he's still like super, super uh, with it and walking around the fly shows. And, and just two years ago at the fly show in Jersey, I bumped into him and he he certainly doesn't know who I am. But I, I told him that story. Like he was sitting in a chair and I was just like waiting in line for something. And I was like, hey, Joe, you know, you're the reason. That, and, and like doesn't know me from Adam. He was so tickled, stood up, shook hands, put a hand on my shoulder. And he's just like so nice. You just want to hang out with that guy all day. Like he's got to be amazing yeah. to fish with him, you know? Yeah, I, I've met uh, I've met Joe Humphreys a, a handful of times, mostly at Edison. And the first time I ever met him, I was like, it was like 14 or 15 or something like that. Yeah. 
And one of my dad's friends who was more into fly fishing than my dad, uh, my, my father set me up with this dude, Wally, and he was like, hey, let's go, uh, let's go to this Edison show. So me and Wally went to the show, and I wanted to get something for my dad. And so I picked a, uh, a really nice net, and I sought out Joe Humphreys because I'd seen like a bunch of people kind of congregating around him. And I was like, you know, like I said, I was 14, 15. I didn't exactly know who he was, but I knew that he meant a lot to a lot of people. So I went and I spoke with him and I said, Hey, you know, I got this net for my dad. Would you mind signing the handle of it? And you know, Joe Humphreys, obviously like super gracious. And he was like, yeah, of course. Like I'll, I'll sign it for you. Yeah. He ended up talking to me a bunch and, uh, and I gave that net to my dad and I think he lost it like immediately. <laughs> <laughs> That's dude. That's a bummer. That's a bummer. Yeah, I I I actually wrote Joe a letter years before that that last encounter, and he sent me a fly. It's a long story, but like I took it out on the stream and like lost it immediately. I'm like, why did I fish that? Uh, Joe Humphreys yeah. tied that. Uh, well, anyway, well, this I'd be interested to know now. What is your favorite fishing documentary? Yeah. So live the stream. Fantastic. Like top three yeah. for me. Uh, but my my all-time favorite fishing documentary is called Gotham Fishtails, and it was made by Robert Moss, who, as far as I know, has, has never really done anything else. He's not like some big fishing filmmaker. Um, and it was released all the way back in 2003. And what he does is he just follows recreational and commercial fishermen from all walks of life around New York City. Uh, like, there's no narration. He, he's not, he doesn't really play a host. There aren't any really... There aren't really any like traditional interviews. The whole thing just moves on unscripted audio from each character. And frankly, um, you were you were saying you this were worried about this would be your favorite documentary. Oh, dude, it's <laughs> so, it's so insane. Very like uh, D. A. Pennebaker. Do you know? Who yeah, that is? I, I don't know. I have no idea, but I'll take your and word for it. You did a it. Bob Dylan documentary, the same type thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just very. It's like frankly, it's cheaply made, right? It's not flashy. Uh, but it just does such a, an incredible job of capturing who these people are and what it means to be an angler in and around New York City and how the fishing community, both recreational and commercial, has changed. And I have just always loved it. It's basically an hour plus of of Bob the Garbage Men, like multiple Bob <laughs> the Garbage Mans in one thing. Like here, I will, we'll do one clip. Listen to this. This bridge is real productive late in the fall. I mean, you can come here, still fluke. You go on the other side, you get some nice big sea bass, you got your flounders in your wintertime. And that guy, that guy up there takes some nice keeper bass in the fall. He's always up here. He gets at least one a week. Tuesday I had over 40 fluke. And I'm serious, but I only kept like seven. You're only allowed to keep six, you know? I've been fishing for about 20, 20 years in New York. And uh, we generally have a good time. You know, we have a better time, of course, if we catch fish. But uh, even if we don't, we still have managed to have a good time. For me, it's like psychological therapy for me to be out here next to the sea. All right. Well, I was skeptical at first, but this sounds kind of <laughs> right up my alley. Uh, two questions. Is it on Netflix? And if so, may I have your password, please? <laughs> no and no. It is not on Netflix. Uh, matter of fact, it's not on any streaming service I'm aware of. You can, you can still buy it from Amazon on DVD. I don't know if anybody does that anymore. And I still have my DVD because that's how I found it. It ended up on my desk when I was at Saltwater Sportsman, like my, my very first year in the industry, and I reviewed it. But I can tell you, it is currently on YouTube in full. Now, you know how it goes Ooh. with stuff like that, right? How long it'll be there, I don't know, because I always assume it's pirated. You know, somebody ripped the yeah. DVD and threw it up there. But as of this recording, um, it's there, so you can go check it out. Okay, so... 
folks listening, there's two for you to watch this winter. But mm-hmm. we're about to clue you into something else you might want to watch. And we're going to learn all about it in this week's installment of Smooth Moves. Now, usually uh, we, we have like captains and guides come on to provide reality checks about their clients. <laughs> but this week, we've got none other than the Mike Iconelli dropping in to provide a little reality check on himself. Why did you do that? Why? Why did you do that, Terry? Oh my God. Joining us for Smooth Moves, we've got uh, our old buddy Mike Iconelli here this week. It's been a while. What's going on, Mike? How are you? How you doing, guys? Good, man. How's uh, good. how's winter treating you? Winter's treating me good. Uh, our lakes froze up right after Christmas, so I've been yep. sort of locked up for a little bit. But here's the good news. The season's starting in a few weeks. I'm headed to Florida. It's going to be warm. I'm going to catch big bass. <laughs> it's going to be great. Good for you, man. So we don't live too far apart. Do you have good ice? Like, could you walk on it? Or is that like the crap ice we have up here? Crap ice. Yeah. So it's just enough to stop you from doing anything like really fun. Yeah. We have an amazing dog. His name is Quincy and he's my ice tester. And (laughs) the uh, the dog's been cracking under his feet. So it's that kind of ice that you just can't get out on yet. So it's kind of depressing. Quincy the third. It's it's, yeah, it's like a purgatory time of year here. It's like. There's not good ice on the lakes, but then there's like tons of ice coming down the river here on the Delaware. So there's like not much to do there either. I tried to fish a few days ago and all the eddies that are worth fishing were frozen over. The rest was wide open, but like all the zones were just completely frozen over. Um, anyway, you're a traveling man. So you're going to Florida. That's cool. You got some other stuff going on. One of those things, uh, you know, we wanted to talk about a little bit. You have a thing dropping next week, February the 8th on YouTube. What is going on, man? What do you got cooking? Yeah, so I'm real excited about this one. It's um, called a docu-series. I don't even know what the hell a docu-series is, but um, <laughs> the the team here that we work with, they convinced me to sit down over the course of like two weeks and just lay it all out. Um, my life and my career, the state of the sport, the battling leagues, all of it. And Wow. The last time I did it was when I wrote the book. And right, I for- right, right. I forgot how freeing talking about something like that is. So mm, right. uh, I'm excited about it because this isn't a normal, you know, we're, we're not out catching bluegill or catching sharks. And this is just a, a story about the sport, my life, where we're at now versus back in the 90s. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm excited about it. The interesting thing is one of the leagues, which is Bass Angler Sportsman Society, B-A-S-S, uh, really supported us on this project. And we've got some great original footage, some great original photos uh, in with this docu-series. And uh, I'm excited, something different. Yeah, man, I was going to say, I feel like this is something that's sort of long overdue. And I'm glad to see that that you're doing it. Like, um, you know, like any sport, there's a lot of, of, of behind the scenes stuff that I think the fans don't really understand. Um, but I guess you also sort of have to be careful a little bit making a documentary like this. So I feel like it could be, a little bit edgy and kind of kind of what the sport's been been waiting for a little bit. I I hope people like it. I mean, here's the deal. I I didn't throw anyone under the bus, but I told the truth, and I think that's yeah. real. And I think that's important. And you hit it on the head. Uh, when people look at the sport from afar, they're like, "Oh my god!" They they put got these guys on a platform. They think they're magical. Here's the reality. You ready for this? We're regular dudes like everybody else. We got the same, 
same problems, same issues. <laughs> uh, so you're going to hear on this. You're going to I'm, I'm going to talk about uh, depression. I'm going to talk about addiction. I'm going to talk about divorce. Uh, you're going to hear what happened, why 80 of the best pros left bass, the real reason. You're going to hear about it. Um, why I left Major League Fishing to come back to bass, you're going to hear about it. It's all true. That's exciting, man. I'm really pumped for that. Now, that's going to be on your YouTube channel, but you say you don't know what a docuseries is. It's kind of what Netflix has been built on. That, to me, sounds very, like, mainstream Netflix-worthy, man. You know? It, it might be. I, I hope people look at it and they appreciate it. Uh, I did pour my heart out on this one. It was interesting because, I, I, you know, Joe, like you, I'm I'm a Jersey guy, and I grew up in an era when you're not supposed to have feelings. You're not supposed to cry. You're not supposed to tell the right. truth all the time. And this was one where I sat down, and I mean, I got I got emotional. I I, yeah. I teared up at points. I sure. got, I got chills at points remembering stuff. So it was a neat project. I I hope people like it. What's it called, Mike? It's called Never Give Up. Uh, <laughs> that was a stretch, right? Coming up with that title. But uh, <laughs> I, I think in everyone's life and everyone's career, you go through a bit of a roller coaster. And, sure. And when you're at the bottom, sometimes you don't want to wait or you don't want to work to get back up to the top. So like I said, it's, it's just uh, it's a great story of the sport more than anything. And, and I hope people appreciate it. I'm sure they will, man. That's going to be awesome. And it sort of plays right into the segment we're having you on for here. So you're talking about this, this, this docuseries sort of showing you the reality and, you know, how real you guys are. So uh, smooth moves, hey, you know, be, be, normally. Before we do that, Joe, before we do that, I'm yeah. going to start my own docuseries. And it's going to be called Getting in a Word Edgewise with Joe Cermelli. <laughs> One thing I wanted to say. <laughs> be a long documentary. Go ahead and talk, man. <laughs> what I was going to say is, you know, uh, I've grown up very much as like a recreational uh, fisher and a, a docuseries that ilk, even though like uh, the pro circuit and the tournament circuit has never really been some, it's been on like the periphery of a lot of stuff that I've done, but it's never been anything that I focused on personally. Yeah. I think the way that you're like approaching that is going to be super interesting, not only for people who are interested in the tournament scene, but just for uh, people who wanted to know more about the internal workings of an organization like that and how it relates to the people that, you know, you end up seeing on television. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I hope it does that. Um, like, like I said, I, I, I'm here to tell you that pro fishing is no different than any other profession or sport or occupation. There's politics, there's drama, there's heartache, there's success. There's all that stuff. And, you know, I, I, I'll even mention other names, you know, guy, some of the best in the world, right? Rick Klum, right. Kevin Van Dam, Roland Martin. Yeah. These guys all dealt with the same stuff too, right? They're, they're not mm -hmm. superhumans. I mean, this is life. And um, it's, it's an interesting look, I think, uh, at this stage of my career, even though I'm still tour fishing, even though I still have sponsors, I still have to maintain that line. It was nice opening up and being honest, you know, again, without throwing anybody under the bus from a name standpoint, right? It sure. felt very good to just say, "This is how it happened," you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, we yeah. we we had our buddies uh, Carl and Brandon on uh, the other day, and one of the things that Joe really kind of brought up was the fact that everybody wants to thinks they want to do this for a living, and 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 thinks these certain things about it, but one thing that they don't consider is like the pressure. 
and, yes. and and all that stuff that comes with it. And I think it sounds like your docu series is like really going to cover that. I'm super excited. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's definitely. You look at both those guys. Uh, you know, Carl and and Brandon are both probably the hardest working guys out there. And I, I'm saying that for real. They're dark to dark. They work really hard. Their success shows. But the interesting thing is Carl and Brandon were always have been branded as the nice guys. Very, right. very early on, I got thrown under the bus as being the jerk off of professional fishing. <laughs> right. uh, and and I, I was OK with that. I accepted that. Right. Uh, you know, ESPN did an article and said I was the bad boy of uh, or GQ did an article and said I was the bad boy of fishing. I'm not bad boy. I've only I've only been in a street fight like once. I like any I'm not him. But I accepted it and I you know I I focused on what I thought was important and tried to grow my fan base and uh, I'm passionate about fishing, right? So in hindsight all that stuff helped me, but um uh, I really think they have it easier than I had it. <laughs> oh, there you go. All right. All right. All right. Well, so we'll, we'll we'll get into this story here again. This is perfect because we're we're talking about the behind the scenes reality. And if the street fight happened to have anything to do with fishing, maybe that's your story today. <laughs> Normally, we have guides and captains on smooth moves to uh, you know bitch about crazy things their clients have done, but um, you know we want one from your personal history. Just sort of one of those holy shit! I can't believe I did that moments that 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 makes what you do real to the weekend angler. And I know you've said you have tons of these. It's going to be hard to pick. Oh my God. If you guys ever get bored and need material, please call me. Cause I really do. <laughs> I have a, we can do this every Tuesday. Mike, if if you want to every Tuesday, I, I've got a little <laughs> pile of thoughts over here in, in the thousands yeah. Uh, yeah. that would fit this, but uh, on the mic with Mike Ike. <laughs> yeah. Right. It could be, it could be. Uh, I, there's definitely been altercations and all that stuff. And I got some of those stories, but, I, I sort of want to dip into the reality that um, professional bass fishing is a very dangerous sport, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you look at like NASCAR and it's very obvious of the dangers there. You look at football, you look at those athletes say, yes, I get it. It's very obvious. But man, fishing is, you know, it's one of those sports where you don't know. And I want to recall an incident that happened uh, about 10 years ago uh, down on in Orange, Texas, on the Sabine River. Okay. And I was making a long run, trying to get to fish that nobody else got to. And I found this one little bayou, and it was about a five-mile run through this real windy little slough. And I, I've always considered myself a not-so-great boat driver. And I'm being honest about it, right? <laughs> I, I, I usually don't know too many speeds except forward and reverse. And that's it. Nothing in between. And I'm going up this slough, and I remember at the last second, as I turn the slough corner, I see a slick on the surface of the water. And so I've stream fished enough to know that that means there's something underneath the water. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember hitting the throttle, you know, trying to pull the throttle back. And this stream's only about the width of three bass boats wide. And yeah. When I pulled back, I instantly hit something. And when I hit it, before I knew it, I was being thrown, the boat was being thrown onto the embankment. Oh. And it was like it happened in a second, but it felt like an eternity. And yeah. this boat 
I mean, was just riding, riding up this embankment. There are branches and trees. I can hear the noise. It's the one thing I remember is the noise of the branches breaking. And, and the boat went up, went up, and it just about got to the top. And it, boom. And I mean, it literally stopped. And, it, and my partner and I, we felt ourselves jump forward. Dude, it was the scariest. Besides a car accident, it was the scariest thing I've ever been involved in. And once we, I looked at my partner, I said, are you okay? We're both okay. All right. If we're okay, everything else is secondary. And I got out, started looking what's going on here. And I climbed to the nose of the boat and looked down. And that embankment on the other side went down a couple hundred feet, almost straight oh. down. I mean, oh. we, we came within 20 feet of, uh, we came within a bass boat length of going over that embankment totally so this was the craziest thing so the tournament's still going on i'm only about halfway through the day i'm looking around i'm just it's there's trees this wide you know to the left and right of me giant full-size trees and some i've actually been up that river gar fishing i can picture it it's it's windy and crazy and there's yeah windy crazy cypress trees just it's a zoo and we're up there and 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 just by happenstance this local comes idling past, and he's like, "We're like, hey, <laughs> hey, yeah." And I, and once we know we're safe, right? My competitive mode still goes on. So I'm looking at my watch. I'm like, "Shit, I still got like three hours. I got to go catch a limit." <laughs> so I'm like, "Hey, hey." He's got toe straps, and the craziest thing. So he, we tow, uh, hook the toe straps on the back of the eye, and uh, uh, he's pushing, pushing, can't get it out. Uh, uh, keeps trying, keeps trying. Finally, the back of the boat comes off of that wedge or that stump, and it comes down the embankment just like a slip and slide, right in the water. And I'm like, oh my God, we're out. We're out. I hop back in the boat. My partner hops back in the boat, and I just know, I just know something's messed up. And I start the outboard, and it cranks over. The Yamaha sounds good. I idle back out to the main river, put it on pad, and I'm gone. <laughs> And I got to fish the rest of the day. Now, I didn't catch my limit. I, only, I caught a few, but uh, as the reality, right, of, of tournament fishing or those, those scenarios, and I've been in 12-foot waves in a bass boat. I've had lightning crack around me, but it is, it is a dangerous sport. For all everybody watching and listening that thinks it's not a dangerous sport, you're wrong. <laughs> Are we going to hear some more stories like that in the Never Give Up docuseries? Oh, there's a lot of good ones in there. There's a lot of good ones. There's definitely some of those altercations we talked about in there. Uh, there's some really strange and bizarre stuff that's happened with fans over the years. You're going to hear it all. It's all true. So what was the takeaway from that from that accident, man? Like, have, Did you tone it down after that? You know, I toned it down a little bit that next year, right? Like when something like that happens, it's pretty present in your mind. But I think the competitor in me forced it out of my mind. And I, and I, and you know, now I'm still driving like a maniac, like I did then too, you know? Well, so you got never give up even when you tear your lower unit off, right? Never give up. Keep going. Straight up into the woods if you have to. Uh, as always, man, we appreciate you stopping by, Mike. Stoked for this. Everybody listening February 8th next week. Check it out. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk to you again down the road, man. Thanks, guys. And if you ever need any AV audio technical difficulty troubleshooting, call me. <laughs> Sounds good, man. We will. <laughs> 
so that last part that that Mike closed with there, where he, where he was talking about uh, if we ever need him for AV troubleshooting, he said that because <laughs> it took him a little while to get online with us. Right? He's like, I'm not tech savvy. My wife, my wife Becky, uh, is like his IT person, and and she was not home, and it was hysterical because he was getting frustrated, but we weren't. I just I I enjoyed it uh, very much. Mike is always a good time, and after we finished recording with him, we, we talked a little bit about sports docs. Uh, in general, and how something like what he's doing might just have the the sort of the oomph to appeal to folks outside of the fishing world. Because I, I'm not much of a sports guy, really. Like I, I really don't right. care about about sports, but I still get sucked right into a good sports doc. Um, matter of fact, one of our listeners, uh, pardon me for not remembering exactly who, uh, recommended one called Untold Crime and Penalties, which is about the Danbury Trashers hockey team. And holy shit, was it wild. Like, you you don't need to care about hockey at all to get lost in that one. So I, I appreciate a good sports doc. Yeah, yeah, man. Uh, f- drink. Um, I really liked uh, The Last Dance, uh, oh, that yeah. documentary about uh, Michael Jordan and the Bulls. And uh, I don't really give a shit about basketball. Yeah, so. e- exactly. And that's one Some I, things I transcend. Say, yeah, that's that's one I hate to say I have not seen, but it's, uh, it's in my queue. Anyway... Uh, maintaining my title as news dominator is also in my queue. Your quiz was cute and all, but Phil clearly values proper journalism over gimmickry. So let's see what kind of consolation prize Phil has for you this week in fish news. Fish news. That escalated quickly. So man, tell you what, I am still getting feedback from listeners regarding the kids fishing limit that question we had mm. and how limit separation varies state by state. Um, those are still rolling in. That has apparently touched a nerve. People are sharing all I kinds of things so about their states. I am so sick of talking states. about this. I'm, I, I'm, I'm done too, talking about it, man. <laughs> I am too, but I, I that's too bad because I got yeah, a it, note from a listener <laughs> via DM, and I'm yeah. not going to say his name, but I, I just thought I would share this, and then we'll stop talking about this, but I thought I would share this for some perspective on a rule that, as we said, many people might overlook. He says about 15 years ago, he was fishing with his stepson in Virginia, and at the time, the smallmouth limit was five per person. They had kept seven total between them, but put them on the same stringer. And then at the ramp, a warden checked them and asked whose fish these were. And, of course, they were like, well, these are ours, me and my stepsons. And he says, well, they're on the same stringer, uh, so you're over the limit. Who's taking the ticket? And naturally, this guy didn't want his stepson to get in trouble, so he took it, and it was 100 bucks for being over the limit and $20 for each fish over the limit. And I'll say, all in all, right, that's not the worst fine I've ever heard of, but he says to this day, that violation is still on his record and comes up like every time he applies for a job. It has been a thing ever since. So it's just something to think about there when you're talking about a rule that's like, oh, God, get real. Well, yeah, got real for him, you know? yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, yeah, I don't know. That sounds like something that happened, man. I believe him. <laughs> that sucks, anyway, dude. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, you don't care, but I don't, that's that's fine. Uh, but it intrigued me enough that I, I I felt like after this whole thing, I had to know the, 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 the local rules. Um, and I, I started, I will say, I started, I s- tried to search it out on both the New Jersey and PA Fishing Game websites. And I couldn't find anything. So, like, the answer online is not jumping out at you. Um, I called PA. They were mega awesome and helpful. And the lieutenant I spoke to said, you know, you're actually – you're not going to find, you know, wording, verbiage to that explicitly says fish limits must be kept separate or anything like that. 
um, and, and everything would be case by case. And he says, obviously, if you've got three guys on a boat and they're filling a single cooler, you know, fishing game knows what's up, barring any funny business, like, you know, one guy not having a license or them being over a combined limit, you know, they're not going to be hard line about that. He says, where people get in trouble is you catch your limit, your buddy catches his, you put him on the same stringer, and your buddy runs out to get a sandwich. You know, he says, like, that's when they get suspicious, obviously, when it's just one guy over yeah. the limit. So if you're not with the group or with that buddy, then they're going to ask you more questions. So it sounds to me like, um, I don't know, man, maybe that officer in Virginia, he might have been having a bad day because I don't know. I, I, I think the listener that wrote in, he made an honest mistake, you know. Yeah, man. Uh, I'm really trying to stop saying yeah, man. I know. I've had multiple listeners suggest yeah, man t-shirts. <laughs> okay. You ask okay. Garrett about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, so often in, you know, conservation offenses or like whatever you want to call it, it, it really does seem like there is a fair like margin of that law that's up to the interpretation of the officer who's like potentially issuing like the ticket or whatever. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I've personally been out and my dad, you know, when I was a kid, forgot his license and officer came out and was like, do you have your license? And my dad was like, shoot, I don't have my yeah. license. Happens. And the officer yeah. was like, all right, well, your kid can stay here and keep fishing. Why don't you go run back to the house and grab your license and come back? Right, right. End, end of it. Other times, like people can be like super, super hard line on stuff that might uh, that might surprise you, but I, I would be inclined to agree that the the dude was just having a bad day, you know. Yeah, and I mean, rules are rules, not condoning it, but just saying like that seemed like one where if both people were there, it's like, come on. Now, I also wanted to see what the scoop was in Jersey, but unlike the fine folks in PA that love meat eater. I said who I was to the very nice <laughs> monotone lady that answered the phone at the DEP office in Trenton, and she was like, yeah. Okay, hold for transfer, and then I just ended up in in a voicemail. So I don't I don't know about New Jersey. You guys are on your own out there. Uh, anyway, whoever wins news today will be eligible to have Phil Taylor record um, his voicemail message on what? one of our phones. How about it's up for grabs? Phil will do one of our voicemails. Oh, are you okay. in? Um, yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm in for that. <laughs> I'm kidding, although I'm sure we could arrange it. Remember, this is a competition. Hayden and I do not know which news story the other chap is bringing to the table. At the end... Uh, there it is. There are... it is. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold up. Hold up. I mentioned what? in a listener email, we were talking about our um, our vocal tics. Like, for instance, yeah. I say like, and yeah, man, and sometimes can't put a thought together. And you, Joe, you <laughs> every now and again, man, you fall into this, like, British... Uh, like, you'll say, like... For instance, you just said chap. Uh, I've yeah. heard you describe things as not like, oh, that's brilliant, like in an American way, like brilliant, like no, in, I don't, in like I with don't that add sort of accent. To I know, it but when the flourish is implied, it. man. Or uh, <laughs> <laughs> good on ya. you. You do that one a bunch. Sorry, I just listener who wrote in. This is what I was talking about. Continue. Right. <laughs> listener that wrote in. I am more worldly, and that's all it is. I have friends all over the the world. And I enjoy. Ooh, I'm Joe. I enjoy I international waters. <laughs> dialects. Damn it. Anyway, at the end, our audio engineer, the mighty Phil, will declare a winner. And uh, it's uh, it's your it's your lead this week, old boy. What do you got for us there? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> thank you, Joe. Uh, so this story comes to us from the Washington Post. It seems that uh, Russia has underestimated a bunch of Irish fishermen who don't want war games going down in their fishing grounds. Oh, boy. 
There we go. Oh, boy. Oh, yep. man. It's got to drag the Russians into this. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so Russia had planned uh, on doing some naval exercises some 150 miles off of Ireland's southern coast, which international law permits. There's no, like, right. it's not like any sort of, like, stepping over a boundary. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, that would have put the Russian war games inside of Ireland's exclusive economic zone. Joe, do you know what exclusive economic zone is, man? It's the EEZ. Yeah, you know me. (laughs) So, yeah, we've touched on this before. An exclusive economic zone, or EEZ, is is a stretch of ocean that in general extends like 200 miles off the coast of a nation to which that nation has exclusive economic rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, The context in which we touched on it was uh, the New England cod fisheries, where in the mid-70s, the Magnuson-Stevens Act claimed the stretch of ocean extending 200 miles from the coast as sovereign territorial waters in order to curb various forms of overfishing by international vessels. Mm -hmm. Yep. Information dense. I remember this. Yes. Um, And so, you know, some fun facts are coming up. Uh, Though nations uh, had been laying claims of varying dimensions to what they considered their territorial waters, in 1982, the UN formally adopted 200 nautical miles as a standard. So, interesting facts, Joe. Uh, Prior to this, sovereign territorial waters were considered everything... Is it sovereign or sovereign? Are they different? Sovereign, 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 sovereign. There, I can go back and edit all the ups if it is in fact sovereign. <laughs> There's a good lad. Oh, I hate you. Uh, so interesting <laughs> facts. Prior to this, these territorial waters were considered everything within 12 nautical miles of the coast. And prior to that, everything within three miles from the coast. The estimated maximum range of cannon fire. How do you like that? That's huh. pretty... Yep. I didn't know that because there's three mile rules for all sorts of things. I didn't know there was anything tied to, to cannon fire there. That's cool. yeah, yeah. So the twelve, the you know, the twelve nautical miles was like modern times, and like right. you know, the three nautical miles was when they were still firing cannons at each other. Anyhow, well, I gotta say, I'll just add real yeah. quick. Like I've been offshore in Jersey, like way, way out when the Coast Guard is out there drilling, and dude, like they don't mess. Like you're literally tuna fishing, and it's like. Holy shit, what was that? And they like detonate something and you're like, yeah. damn, sound wave just like <laughs> takes you off the deck. But they're totally allowed to do that. It's yes. very cool. It's eerie, but it's cool. And we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, anyhow, the war games 150 miles off Ireland's southern coast would have put the Russians 50 miles inside of Ireland's EEZ. Yeah, you know me. Yeah. Uh, there are two <laughs> primary concerns with this. One is the short-term obvious. It's awfully hard to fish with warships and artillery crowding up the fishing grounds. Uh, there is nothing mm-hmm. like bycatch in the form of a Russian nuclear submarine. Mm-hmm. Not that commercial fishing offshore is particularly safe in the first place. Um, the second concern is long-term and slightly less obvious. Human disruption and impact on future quotas. Human disturbance can have negative impacts on wildlife. Duh. Right? hmm But Mm -hmm. one thing biologists were particularly concerned with in this case was noise pollution generated by what are presumably not very quiet war games. Um, There's another. So this is another thing that we've touched on in a previous fish news story when we discussed shark nets and their alternatives a couple months ago, uh, specifically drum lines, which in, in case listeners don't remember, I know you do, Joe, are strings of devices that produce loud noises to deter sharks from frequenting an area. 
While drum lines can alter the behaviors of sharks, they can also alter the behaviors of what I guess you'd call non-target species. Right. Um, so bringing it back to war games in Ireland's EEZ, biologists are concerned that the noise generated could alter the behaviors of marine life. In turn, fishermen are concerned that uh, once this unforeseen environmental factor is taken into account by fisheries biologists, uh, the war games will translate into reduced quotas for commercially sought after fish down the line. So, like, theoretically, I mean, like, the impact could extend into next season. Now, if, if you're worried that you don't understand the entirety of that long and confusing explanation of EEZs and uh, marine noise pollution's impact on commercial fish quotas, fear not, because it is no longer a relevant piece of information going forward. <laughs> Over the weekend, Russia decided to relocate naval exercises to areas presumably outside the EEZ as a gesture of goodwill. The news was received with elation by all, including the very predictably named Patrick Murphy, chief executive of the <laughs> Irish South and West... <laughs> Fish Producers Organization, who, of the victory, said to the equally predictably named Irish CNN correspondent, Donnie O'Sullivan, it's fantastic. (laughs) Uh, Seriously, though, if you're interested, go check out the interview. If you YouTube uh, Russia Blinks CNN Irish Fisherman, that's what I did. You'll find it. Um, It's information dense and explains more than just the essential details, as I've done here. They, they take you more through the how than the why, uh, you know, basically how these fishermen recognize this, this was an issue, banded together and asked Russia, please don't blow shit up in our easy. Um, <laughs> and, and, it, and it goes to show what can happen when uh, folks who care about a resource get together and, you know, make an effort to protect it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. couple thoughts on it, right? One, like – Russia, if I'm not mistaken, owns pretty much the biggest landmass in the entire world. Like, y'all ain't got enough ocean that you yeah. can just do this shit in your part of the ocean. I don't like, I don't understand why we need to be all the way down off Ireland uh, unless it's just too cold. But it's also funny because, like, here's a here's a group of commercial fishermen. This is their livelihood. And they're complaining that Russian warships might be too noisy for their fish. <laughs> Meanwhile, over here, like our guys are complaining that wind farms might be too noisy for their fish. And it's just a very stark difference in problems there yeah. when you think about it. You know, so uh, good on the Irish boys for, for disrupting again. or threatening uh, to disrupt this. But um, good on you. Good on you. Because. <laughs> I, yeah, these guys are. I know these guys are out there like fishing for whiting and stuff, and like mm. you got your little Irish commercial boat, and they got a uh, nuclear warship. So you know that's a that's that takes some brass to to just try to. We're talking about the Russians, not the wind farmers. Again, yeah. it's very stark what we're trying to disrupt here. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm glad that works out. That's uh, one less Russian thing to worry about as of late. <laughs> one right? less. At least the fishermen are okay. Please enter your password. You have one unheard message. Aiden, you dog. Uh, you borrowed my auger for that ice fishing article. You never wrote the article. You still haven't given me back the auger. I'm trying to get a hold of you for two weeks. Answer your damn phone. Call me back. Bye. End of message. Delete. Press 7. Save. Deleted. 
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. So you talked about commercial fishermen in Ireland. Uh, They're out there making their living from the sea. Let's talk about how you can make uh, your monies right here in the good old U.S. of A. by catching fish. So a bunch of folks sent me this story, and I thank you all. And they did it because it ties back to a piece we covered many moons ago about a bounty that was placed on the heads of brown trout in Arizona's Glen Canyon stretch of the Colorado River. Now, when that story first dropped, the going rate was 25 bones for any brown trout over six inches. And we joked at the time that all you meat chuckers should just quit your jobs and head out since, you know, you're all just brown trout slayers anyway, right? Mm. Seems perfect. Uh, Quick update on that. As of December 2021, the pay has been increased to $33 per brown trout and an additional $50 for each three brown trout, 300 bucks for each harvested brown uh, containing a pit tag, 500 bonus for the largest brown at the end of each month, 500 bonus for the most brown trout harvested at the end of each month. So wait, wait, you can make you a killing. Off, you, you can. Uh, are those pit tags, are those the ones that are, um, Cal did a video of a similar bounty on rainbow trout, and I forget where yep. it was. But it's Snake River, I believe. Yeah, but it's a it's a it's a 
tag. It's not like one of the like the transducer tags or whatever you'd call them with the uh, that are actually like outside the fish, like mm-hmm. the, the ones with like you know about an inch long with like a number on them. They're invisible and they're put into the heads of the trout. And the reason that they do that is so you must kill one um, to to find out whether or not that the trout that you submitted has been tagged. Because otherwise, like, you could catch a trout, look at it, see, oh, this doesn't have the $300 tag. Right, and Drop let it, it go. back in and let it go, yeah. To be honest with you, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not that familiar enough with the, the program out there. I know they want the brown trout out. So it would seem to me like if you were collecting brown trout to put pit tags in them, why wouldn't you just not put those back either. So be- I really don't know. Because it incentivizes more people to go try and find Yeah, it may, it may be as simple as that, and it sort of ties to the main story here. Um, so, look, here's what I'm thinking. Okay. You pummel that scene all fall and winter, and then right around May, you head up to the Columbia River and complete your annual earnings chasing northern pike minnows. Now, according to this story, this is the one you guys sent from the Tri-City Herald, one Washington angler earned himself $61,000 Catching Jeez. pike minnows in 2021. Um, and now, a, a portion of the annual payout for for Washington's pike minnow sport reward program is actually furnished by uh, the Bonneville Power Administration. And in 2021, nearly $700,000 was paid out in total right, wow. for this program. According to the story, that's actually down from 840000 in 2020. And what they say is that's, that's because um, there were condition issues. There was a lot of grass and debris in uh, in the rivers during peak fishing times last year, which slowed down catch rates and productivity. Um, now, to keep people out there fishing, Washington is offering a raise here too. Last season, they paid five bucks for every dead pike minnow. Uh, this season, it's going to be six bucks each for the first twenty-five pike minnows, eight bucks each for twenty-six to two hundred fish, and ten bucks a pop after two hundred. In addition, similar to the pit tag deal, specially tagged pike minnow are worth five hundred bucks. A piece. Nice. Um, I got to make so, a confession. Yeah. Um, this is going to surprise no one, but I'm an idiot. And when I first heard uh, about this, particularly how you call them northern pike minnows, bro, I thought like it was the, it, it was like a bounty on uh, like the minnows of the northern pike. You mean like pike fry? You mean like juvenile yeah. pike? Yeah. No, incorrect. It's a whole other species. No, I know, and I I cleared this up with Miles when he like dropped his story like last year or whenever it was. But yeah, so okay, yeah. I thought, no, I thought you'd appreciate nor- that. I don't know. Not, no, I did appreciate that. Thing, I appreciate your honesty. Yeah. I appreciate your honesty. No, but no, it's a it's a whole separate deal. And what's <laughs> funny again uh, is there 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 are, are pike minnows. I don't know if it's the northern or a different one, like where they're protected. I believe in parts of the Colorado River, there's giant ones that like those are protected. Yet up there, we we want these to go away. Mm. And for anybody who doesn't get that, what's wrong with pike minnows? Well, they're pretty voracious, right? And they gobble up young salmon and steelhead. And as we know, as we've talked about, those two fish kind of take top honors out there in those systems, <laughs> um, as well as in the Snake River. Uh, and this reward program is also in play there. So it's the Columbia and the Snake River, Washington and Oregon. So this is from the story, kind of fascinating. Biologists estimate that the reward program has reduced predation on young salmon and steelhead by up to 40% from levels before the program began. Uh, The program's annual goal is to remove 10% to 20% of pike minnows that are nine inches or longer in the two rivers in Washington and Oregon. In 2021, an estimated 11.3% of pike minnows were removed. 
Hmm. So, I mean, that's that's pretty significant. Uh, it, it's working. So this past year's top earner, the guy that ended up with uh, 61K, personally checked in 7,185 pike minnows, seven of which were tagged, therefore worth a lot more coin. I don't think I've caught... 7,000 fish <laughs> in, in my your life. life right? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, so I'll, I'll get to that for all you, like for everybody out there who's like listening, like I need to go do this. Just hang on, understand some things. Uh, his wife, this guy's wife, she also contributed 1,700 pike minnows, thus boosting the final cash payout even further. And this story seems to suggest that they may in fact uh, just kind of do this for money. Like that just might be what these two folks do. This is their income. And hey, I mean, that ain't bad, right? Um, the next three top earners in the program during the past season each had payouts between $30,000 and $40,000. So this is the, the tricky part, right? Um, to, to get back to those brown trout for a second, you know, a lot of people wrote in after that and said, yeah, but you got to understand, it's not like uh, Glen Canyon is rife with them. Like, there's not that many, you know what I mean? And they they want them gone. So it's not like a brown trout sleigh fest when you go down there. You kind of work for browns in that system. Yeah. A little bit of the same deal here. As I understand it, pike minnows are not super hard to catch. But they can be really tricky to find. And having visited the Columbia, I mean, this is a huge river system. Um, you know, it's super wide, super deep. So from what I've read and seen on YouTube, they'll eat almost anything, right? They'll eat a spinner. They'll eat a spoon, simple piece of cut bait, a worm, whatever. But one angler in the story was quoted as saying, like, you can go to a spot one day and you'll catch a pile. Like, you'll just you'll put up just a shitload of these fish and the next day they're just gone. And they may never be in that spot again. So like this guy who, who earned all this money, you said you, you haven't caught 7,000 fish in your life. For all of you hopefuls out there currently drafting letters of resignation to your employer, keep in mind that like these top earners, the time they put in is ridiculous. Like this is not like bluegill fishing. Like mm. these dudes basically devote every waking minute. You know what in pan fish? It does this. sound a lot like. It sounds a lot like crappie fishing. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly, exactly. Now I don't know enough about the science or the behavior of pike minnows. It's something I've never targeted, but it almost seems to me like they just are always on the move. You know what I mean? Like they're just piled in here and then they're gone. But um, yeah, man, I mean, you could, you could make some drink. coin. That'd be, it'd be hard for me. Yeah. Drink. Um, the guy who sent in the story about getting, getting pinched on the stringer put yeah, man in his own DM parentheses, <laughs> arrow pointing to it, drink. So that is infecting people. I just wanted to say, so there you go. Go out and make some money catching pike minnows. Um, we're going to, we're going to catch some heat from Phil here. We got pike minnows today or uh, the Irish, whatever you're more into, Phil. I don't know if you're Irish or what. Phil is probably very Irish. You're right. Okay. Yeah. He's, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And uh, as soon as we're done being judged by Phil, we're going to do an end of the line that sort of keeps up the theme of, um, of drama this week. We've talked about a lot of dramatic documentaries we like. We'll keep the drama going with uh, a a special story. A ballad even. A ballad. An ode, an homage, end of the line homage. Hayden Samick, quit playing war games with my heart. You are the winner this week. As a matter of fact, I do have a bit of Irish in me. When I'm not editing podcasts, you can find me out in the woods looking for hearts, stars, horseshoes, clovers, and blue moons, pots of gold, rainbows, and the red balloons. Also, my ass is so pale that it kind of looks like the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. 
all kind of scrunched up and pissed off, you know, after they shoot him with the proton pack. Yeah. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. This story begins in Port Clinton, Ohio, in July 2021, where I was hanging out with my bud Ross Robertson while filming the walleye episode of Das Boat Season 3. Now, during that trip, we had a little downtime, and I'm always interested in visiting tackle shops when I'm on the road, especially in places like Port Clinton, as they cater to vastly different angling needs than the shops back east. So there we were, in Fisherman's Central, which is a badass shop, and there I was, staring down an entire wall of Smithwick Rogue jerkbaits. I've already covered the Rogue on End of the Line and told you about its roots and how I've come to love this lore, especially for trout, but it doesn't have a cultural stronghold in the far northeast where I live like it does elsewhere. In fact, I'm lucky to find simple silver and gold Rogues back home, and if I do, they're generally the deep-diving models, not the smaller suspending Super Rogue Junior. Because that, my friends, is my moneymaker. And Fisherman's Central had it in colors I didn't even know existed. One of which, and admittedly the one that was least appealing at the time, was a bloody crawfish red. Now, I bought two of every color that day, but only one in that red. Those lures just sat in my garage until November, when me and some buddies get more serious about floating for big browns on a local river that just tends to fish better in the colder months. Now, for no particular reason... I tied on that red rogue during our first float of the season. And in a few short miles, it was smashed by three nice smallmouths, three browns between 17 and 22 inches, and it moved several more fish that day. Maybe there is something to the red, I thought. But then in the last run, a whopper trout hit it so hard that it snapped my leader. Knowing I'd be going back soon, I decided rather than hurry up and order more lures, I'd just make one. So I took an old silver suspending Super Rogue Junior that was missing an eye, broke out the airbrush compressor and the Copic markers, and spruced it up with new eyes, a fresh black back, blood red sides, and a brighter orange belly. And I got to tell you, it looked really great. I was really proud of myself. And then, like an idiot, I sealed it with clear enamel spray, and all the marker ran, and then it just looked like total shit. Or so I thought. Next round on the river, I had my bud and frequent bent guest Jim Fee chuck that lure that looked like it was painted by a preschooler. And we had some pretty terrible conditions that day, but wouldn't you know it, a tiger trout, a small brown, and a fatty over 20 inches, aka the nicest wild stream brown Jim had caught in years, piled on to that rogue. A couple weeks later, that ugly rogue jacked another 22 for me and moved a few more and scored a giant pickerel. And just like that, my half-assed custom lure kind of became... The one. In fact, it closed out the season on that river with a 25-inch brown, the biggest I'd taken there to date. And the lure, which by then I'd quietly dubbed Sweet Rusty, had become my most trusted jerkbait in a matter of about a month and a half. On January 25th, 2022, at 12.14 p.m., Sweet Rusty died tragically. And I do mean tragically, because Rusty's final swim was while targeting, of all things, walleyes. Now, if you've been listening to Ben for a while, you know walleyes are not really my jam, but inevitably come midwinter, my cabin fever gets so excruciating that I talk myself into visiting one of several known walleye wintering holes on the Delaware River. And these are all places that just get pounded. And my success at any of them over the years has been nominal, mostly because 
If it's freezing cold and I'm walleye fishing and I don't get bit in like 15 minutes, I completely lose interest. But on the January 25th visit, I had something I didn't have before. Sweet Rusty. I thought maybe this Jackson Pollock theme bait would be as much of a ringer in Walter World as it had been in Browntown. It was on the second retrieve that I got thumped. Or at least that's what I thought at first. But then I remembered I was walleye fishing, and had it been a walleye, I'd have felt nothing. Just sudden dead weight on the end of the line. No, my friends, it was a rock that Rusty had connected with. And the poor fella came back in twirling, just under the surface. Only half a lip remaining on his face. And I was heartbroken. For Rusty, who had survived miles of river, thousands of casts, repeated knocks off bank wood, crushing blows from big browns and pickerel, this was an embarrassing demise. It was like a valiant soldier surviving many heated firefights only to be killed later by a Nerf bow and arrow. Now, at the end of the day, and kidding aside, Rusty's nothing but a suspending super rogue junior, and I own a bunch of those. So what's the big deal, right? He didn't swim any differently than the rest of them. So was my botched paint job really the magic? I mean, maybe. But my guess is, had I been fishing factory red or silver instead, all the eats and moves would have happened anyway. The fish were just on. They were chewing. The only reason I stuck with Russ was because I had confidence in him, even if deep down I knew that was an unfounded confidence. Because, I mean, it's not like other people on the boat weren't moving or catching trout on other shit. I think most anglers have owned similar lures. And in some cases, they may be legitimately tweaked to perform differently than they would right out of the package. But most of the time, that's not really the case. Most of the time, nothing's been tweaked. It's just that this black jitterbug or whatever just has the it that the rest of them don't. It's got the mojo, the juju, the juice. And there are all different ways a lure fly can attain this mojo. But while you can replace and replicate pretty much any lure or fly, you can't easily build in the confidence that you had in the original. I'm sure some of you have lures like Sweet Rusty. And whether they're living or they've passed on, we'd love to hear about them. So send your homage to Bent at TheMeatEater.com. You know, that was, that was kind of a sad story, Joe. <laughs> I to- <laughs> did I not say it would be dramatic? You did. I told you, you it'd did. be dramatic. <laughs> um, I, can, I can sympathize with this, though, uh, because you know that when I'm conventional fishing, I'm doing like a lot of like chunking and soft plastic shit. Like I don't yeah. really mess around with like stick baits too much. Um, right, right. And then I, you know, I fly fish a bunch and that's typically like a pretty transient, um, like, a, like, like flies are transient, man. You never really hang on to them too long unless yeah. you're not using them. It's Streamers not like you're on like, occasion, but everything else, yeah, not you can so hold, much. Yeah. You can hold on to like a bugger or some shit, but like, anyhow, um, my favorite fly like ever is this one I tie. It's like a, uh, it's a copper tongue head. So copper colored uh-huh. tongue head with an orange hot spot, a CDC soft hackle, a pheasant tail body with like a little ostrich hurl is like the Thor, not ostrich hurl, a peacock hurl is the thorax. And then I, I tail it with CDL, which if you, if you guys aren't as hip as I am, it's a Coq de Leon, which is just like, a, it's basically like a spate hackle fiber kind of, mm-hmm. you know, but it's like mm-hmm. barred and it's, it's a really good tailing material. Anyhow. I love that fly. I hate tying that fly. So when I would like, I, I'd tie them in like, you know, sets of three and four. And when I would get to that fourth one, this happened this uh, past winter, man, I just did not feel like tying 
more of those. So I, I just remember seeing this beat up crusty one in my box that was just, I mean, it had like pheasant tail fibers, like popping out of the middle, like the, the yeah. hot spot was coming undone. And I just prayed to the fishing gods, please, <laughs> please let this last through a handful more trout and, and I'll be happy. And I kept repeating that yeah. prayer and on, on some Hanukkah shit, you know, it was like the oil just kept <laughs> lasting <laughs> and then I lost it. And well, man, I, 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 I was equally heartbroken. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's funny about this is I posted this really goofy Instagram video about losing <laughs> about the destruction of rusty. And I set it to candle in the wind and maybe I made it too sad because people from all over were hitting me up, like, send me that lore and I will fix it. Like, people are like, Rusty's not going to die on my watch. You know, people are like, get a guitar pick and retrofit <laughs> it. I'll drop everything and, and triage this for you. And I appreciate that so much from the bottom of my heart. Uh, but while sad, like, I was I was also mostly joking. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't like, losing sleep over, over a you stick You did bait. call me in tears that one night. But I think you, like, <laughs> drank a little bit too much or something. That was something else that we won't... No, I'm kidding. Um, but, yeah, like, uh, it was a great lore. I might actually fix it. I've, I've been given some great suggestions. But still, like, I, like, it wasn't like it didn't crush my soul, especially since I have more of those. And I have piles of Loco special jerkbaits from our sponsors, 13 Fishing, some of which I've already added similar red accents to. Um, they make a three to five foot diver, a uh, six to nine foot diver, and the three to five is my jam. They actually have, uh, unlike many stick baits, jerk baits, a weight transfer system, so they bomb. And also the hooks that come on them are scary sharp, way sharper than Smithwick Rogue factory hooks. So that is something to keep in mind. That they are. Not that I have used mine yet because everything here is, I don't know, frozen solid right. but they but they do catch shirt sleeves quite effectively hey you know you, you know what else is sharp the question we got from one of you out there for this week's bent helpline what are you laughing at martini you're not an idiot huh you're not a damn loony now boy you're a fisherman <laughs> what's your emergency So for the first time in uh, Bent Helpline history, we have our our first audio question this week. Correct me if I'm wrong. And this is an audio question this week, right? Sure is. Yeah. And this one comes from uh, Jim Morrison. Um, Not of the doors, although it's a great name. Come on, baby. Light my fire. (laughs) Jim has actually been following uh, me and my stuff for a long time. So it's cool that that, uh, Jim has worked his way into Bent here. And um, it's nice because we have to do a little bit less reading this week, Jim. So here's Jim's question directly from Jim himself. Hey, John Hayden. Love the show. Got a good one for you guys. So let's talk first mates and tips. What is the driver of a tip for a first mate? Is it the catching of the fish or the overall experience? This past summer, I had a first, um, which was a bad first mate. We had a $2,500 charter. Five guys went, $500 a guy. Um, Two of, two of my buddies have never really fished before offshore. So the first mate was yelling at them, swearing, slapping the rod out of their hands. Uh, frankly, he was just a dick. Um, when it was time to, to leave at the end of the day, the three of us tipped him 100 bucks each who, who've all fished before, and the two guys who, frankly, had a bad time stiffed him. I want to get your thoughts on that, on, on what distinguishes how you should tip a first mate. It always creeps me out to get those voice memos from beyond the grave. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The number was from France. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so I'll tell you what. I think this, this is a terrific question. 
And this pops up for me oh, at least, I don't know, six, seven times a year from people who are traveling mm. to, to book charters who just don't have a lot of experience with this. Um, and I really wish that there was a, an easy, definitive answer, but there is not. Although I will say this. Tipping in general, I think, in my opinion, it's ultimately about service. Like you can put percentages on it and say like, oh, well, you know, it's customary to tip. Yeah, it might be customary if you're pleased with your service to give somebody 20% of whatever it may be. But like if it's shitty service, basically people want to know, well, how do I figure out how much to give a first mate? How do I figure out how much to give a captain? It's ultimately stemming from how good of a time you had and how hard they worked. So to jump right in, uh, you know, with with Jim's scenario here, where you had two guys that knew what they were doing and the first mate was awesome with them, and two guys that kind of didn't, and the first mate treated them like shit. Assuming that those two guys who got treated like shit were good friends of mine, I would not have tipped the mate anything because, like, to me, it's like you're, you're there for the whole experience. You're all on the boat together, and if you're being an ass to my boy, like that would have factored into me tipping the guy. Yeah. I think like this is a, a particular, um, this is like kind of a conundrum that you run into on chartered boats. Sometimes it's, it's, it's not like, it's not like shitty service at a restaurant because anybody who gets shitty service at a restaurant is going to be like, well, that was shitty service. Um, right. if you're on like a fishing charter and you're coming from the position where like, you don't know anything about fishing. So yeah, I, dude, I mean, if this happens, man, pay the charter blank the mate. Yeah. I mean, and that's at the end of the day, like that's you, you reserve the right to do that and how you determine what that tip is worth. I mean, in very simple terms, I, I always just look at it like kind of like the cost of goods. So just hypothetically, if you're, if you're paying for a charter, like an inshore charter, whatever it may be. Um, we'll say an inshore charter on average is 600 bucks, 700 bucks. I mean, just in this day and age, like I think of that scene, again, not to bring up the Christmas vacation where the grandmother's like, if you rub, I have a painful burr on my hair. And if you rub it for me, I'll give you a whole quarter. Well, like, <laughs> dude, in this day and age, like if, if a mate was good, I always look at it like the kid should be at least getting you know, a hundred bucks total, like yeah. chip in from all the guys or whatever it is. And if he was a rock star, you can go from there, right? Um, I mean, you could call it 20%. I mean, that's sort of, you know, in the ballpark. But how you determine what was good, I think is on case by case. It certainly wouldn't be for me how many fish we caught. As an example, we go out tog fishing. We might have a horrible day. They might not be biting. It might totally suck. But if... That dude's constantly cutting crabs, making sure your bait bucket is full, helping you get unstuck, running up on the bow, you know, to put two anchors out, set two anchors in rough ass, ice cold seas in the wind. Like he's working his ass off to, to, to make your trip as successful as possible. For me, it's always more determined by that. How hard did yeah. he work? Yeah. It's not it, what you caught. It's how hard did he work? Yeah. To come back to like the waiter, you know, uh, analogy, right? Like you wouldn't poorly tip a waiter who gave you excellent service because the food sucked. You know what right. I mean? Like that's not on the waiter. The waiter did everything that they could. That said, man, um, you know, you're going to tip uh, a guy like this in one of two ways. You know, you're either going to tip him by like letting him stroke his own ego and be like, look, I'm the man. I know how to catch fish. These guys are idiots you know 
great. That's his tip, man. That that dude got to like feed his ego for the trip and you know, whatever. But if you have another dude who's like trying his hardest, man, and isn't trying to feed his ego, that's when you tip that guy. Yeah. Exactly. And another way to look at it, too, in certain scenarios, I think more so that you'll see this more in fly fishing because uh, there's no first mate in fly fishing. Mm. But, you know, you, you book a fly guide, you float the river, you wade, whatever it is. I know a ton of fly guides and there are some guys who like your tip is directly tied to how many fish they caught that day. They, you know, th- these people don't think about the fact that the guide can't catch them for you. He can yep. put you on them. He could take you to where they're rising. Yep. He can give you the bug yep. and he can coach you through that, but he can't he can't execute the cast unless you want him to, and then he hands you the rod. But I think um for the good guys in that scenario, they also uh, have the respect to tip based on what did I learn. Okay, well maybe yeah. we didn't have a great day of fishing, but like did this guy improve my cast? Did he teach me something about entomology I didn't know before? That's another way to look at it. Yeah, and and I think the final thing that um I you know I want to kind of touch on is like the general demeanor of the guide. There are a couple different types of guides that you'll run into. There's like the guy who wants everybody to go out and have a good time and isn't really taking it that serious. You know, you're at a bachelor party, you're with a couple of your buddies, and like you're trolling for Mahi in some like tropical like destination, and you don't really care too much about like the fishing. You care more about like the fun and the experience. Like that's one kind of guide you run into. The opposite of that, maybe in the same general area, is if you go on the bonefish flats with like a, a hardened salt water guide, that experience is like more serious because you're really trying to pursue something. And a lot of times those kind of guides, they'll give you like tough love on stuff, man. They'll because they want to function as a team and they want to be successful too. But there is a, a fine line between giving you a little bit of tough love and like, you know, seeing how good of an angler you are and like trying to help you live up to that and being a dickhead. And, you know, and like, that's something you got to have the confidence to recognize and be like, I didn't like that. And this is not the way that this should have gone. Yeah. You know, people ask me for guide and captain recommendations all the time. And if there's one piece of advice I can give you, and this ties to tipping. Talk to them. Basically, exactly. In my opinion, your experience starts a long time before you ever end up on the boat or wherever. And, you know, people hit me up and they're like, well, I have, my son is five and we're going here and I'd like to do this. And who do you recommend? I'm like, give him a call. Yeah. You got to pick up the phone and I'm like, give every detail, be super explicit. I'm bringing my son. All he wants to catch is a barracuda. It doesn't have to be a big one. We don't have to be out all like, don't just jump on a boat blind because in his resume, he says he targets the thing you want to target. Like, Ask a million questions. And if the guy or, or, or girl kind of blows you off and acts like they don't have time to answer all your questions. Don't go. Wrong, wrong, wrong guide. Yeah. Wrong guide. Yeah. They're, they're there to make your experience exactly what you want it to be. And assuming they do that, then they deserve as much tip as you want to give them. Tip, tip them out. Yeah. Same time, if you get on a boat and the mate's an asshole and you're not going to tip them, I would go right to the captain and be like, sorry, dude, your mate's an asshole. And, you know, like he needs to know that if, if that's really affecting your experience. So no, no hard and fast rule there, uh, but it is at your discretion. And the best thing you can do is ask a million questions before booking any, any charter guided trip. Yeah. Um, Jim, yeah. thank you for that. Thank you for the voice memo too. That was a nice change. Uh, good to hear from you. We, we accept voice memos. We uh, love voice emails. memos. Yeah, we love them. Uh, emails, you can hit us up 
on DM. Um, ben at TheMediator.com if you want to go that route. Please keep those questions coming. We are really enjoying this. A lot of them have been super awesome. And um, you might get yours answered right here on The Bent Helpline. So that's it for this week. Uh, thanks again to Mike Iconelli for dropping by. When in doubt, whether you're watching a fish documentary or uh, running a jet boat or, or, or screaming at a shitty first mate, run it like <laughs> you stole it, a la Mike Iconelli. Go all in on that, you know what I'm saying? Also, never give up on sending those awkward photos, sale bin items, bar nominations, and helpline questions to bent at themeateater.com and keep using those Degenerate Angler and Bent Podcast hashtags. And go ahead and follow them yourself. It'll give you something to scrutinize other than my shitty power tools. Because <laughs> that's what we all want to see, Hayden's power tools. Hey, don't forget, if we reshare anything that you tagged, you get some sweet Bent stickers. Uh, and if you want to up your chances of us resharing, we accept tips in the form of Bitcoin, homemade lures, hand-tied flies, and Walmart gift cards. Send the drill. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.